The Cut. The Cut. The Cut. The Cut. The Cut. So let me start with an announcement. This is my last episode with The Cut. The show is not ending. You're in Parker and Jasmine's capable hands now. And we have two new producers to welcome aboard. Nora and Skylar. They will take very good care of you, dear listener. And I'm not leaving, per se. I'm still at New York Magazine working on a different project that I'll tell you about. But I am leaving my job. This job. And according to my colleague, Katie Haney, I'm not alone. I had been seeing a lot of people on Twitter announcing that they were leaving their jobs. And you're like, well, I also am tired and sick of doing my job. And I also would like to quit. Katie Haney's piece for The Cut is called The Clockout Cure, about how her social media feeds were suddenly inundated with posts by everyone, from academics to journalists to pastors to mayors, who were quitting their jobs. And Katie wanted that too. I mostly mean like in the worst parts of the pandemic. I just didn't want to have to sign into Slack or like talk to anybody. I wanted to sink further into the bad feeling and having a job got in the way of that. (laughs) Well, it's interesting that you say you wanted to sink further into the bad feeling because in your piece that you wrote, you're like, I just kept telling myself like tomorrow will be better. What was that? Um. I mean, that's, I think that's partly realism talking. Like I, even when I wanted to quit, I couldn't afford to. So I had to believe that it would get better. I definitely felt this over the last year. I was just sort of white knuckling with hope. Optimism was pragmatism. I kept telling myself that this time wasn't a wash. I was using it to learn so much about myself and things have to get better. Tomorrow will be better. Next month will be better. I don't know. It just has to be. Because even really bad feelings and really bad days aren't permanent. No feeling is the last one that you'll ever have until you're dead. (laughs) So I just feel like, yeah, it's just true. Like, it's just true. Things will get better and then they'll get worse again and then they'll get better again. Well, I guess one of the interesting things reading reading what you wrote is that like okay so this is going to be my last episode of the cut and the first one Mm -hmm. i made was about optimism optimism and happiness are not the same thing in which the optimism (laughs) expert was like we are naturally she told me we are naturally inclined towards negativity we know in psychology research that people in general have what's called a negativity bias so when bad things happen to us we're much more likely to kind of latch on to them you're a writer you know what it's like when you get like five positive comments and like one negative one you're like oh my god my life is over that we tend to fixate on the negative and that she said that optimism is like course, like a necessary uh, corrective. Hmm. I just wonder what you make of that. Yeah. I feel like I disagree. (laughs) Like I just Mm. don't, I don't, (laughs) I don't think I agree that we're naturally negative. Uh, I think almost the opposite. I think people can be like delusionally positive (laughs) and, and sort of avoidant more than negative. I I just think, 
and maybe this is me generalizing from myself because I think I'm generally a pretty optimistic person. And I suppose I am too. Because since I started working on that original Optimism episode almost exactly a year ago, in my privileged little world, I stayed pretty staunchly optimistic. Like, we have to vote Trump out. We have to find a vaccine. The jury has to find Derek Chauvin guilty. I don't know. We just have to. We will. We must. And now, in a lot of ways, now that things are relatively objectively better, like I am alive, a lot of my hopes came true, I should probably feel even more hopeful. But the truth is, I don't. Lately, I feel bleakness trickling back in. I'm like, oh, right, climate change. You know? I feel less optimistic, actually. Yesterday, the CDC said vaccinated people could go mostly maskless, and I just felt like this is pretty purely good news. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think I just feel so, I mean, because in a weird way, this is like everything that we dreamt of that moment. And it wasn't the relief that I expected to feel because it was paired with like, horrible images from Gaza and like news of more mass shootings. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I'm just feeling like weird. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. And I think that maybe my version of optimism isn't as optimistic as (laughs) other people's. Like, I think it's like, yeah, I I do think good changes will come. I think bad ones will come too. But I think nothing is permanent. And that includes my optimism. (laughs) And that's just life, right? C'est la vie. Roll with the punches. So it goes. So what do we do with that optimistic urge to continually grasp at something called happiness or satisfaction or peace? That hope that life will somehow not only get better, but stay better and better. But as Eduardo Galeano put it, utopia is on the horizon. I move two steps closer, it moves two steps further away. I walk another 10 steps, and the horizon runs 10 steps further away. As much as I may walk, I'll never reach it. So what's the point of utopia? The point is this. To keep walking. And so, I'm going to keep walking. And the project I'm moving on to, or actually back to is called Nice Try. It's a project from Curbed and Vox Media, and it's about humanity's perpetual quest for betterment. Season one was about utopian experiments around the world, including the ways that quests for utopia have been the seeds of colonization and subjugation and disenfranchisement. Because someone's utopia is someone else's dystopia. Season two is not going to be about utopias, but it will be about this same pursuit the same relentless force of optimism and its pitfalls. Because optimism at times can look like the most glaring form of privilege for the lucky and the safe. It certainly felt that way the first time I took off my mask to drink a fancy cocktail at a bar in Brooklyn. Cheers to brighter tomorrows. We did it. But maybe it's the other way around. That maybe being able to discard optimism is the real luxury. I feel like I and we have no privilege to lose hope. What options we have, like, is just to die or to leave this place. And I'm optimistic, despite everything. We'll talk about that. 
Optimism in Brooklyn is one thing. Optimism in the occupied West Bank is another. After the break, one Palestinian activist explains why he has had to learn to be optimistic. You've been here actually every... I didn't do birthright, but I have, mm. I have been there. Do you have a family here or something? No family. Um, mostly just very conflicted feelings. I see, yeah. yeah. I just want to smoke if that's all right. Oh, yeah, of course. Go yeah. for it. I need a permit as usual. Oh, geez. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. I'm just a sarcastic person. What can I do? It's a little on the nose. It's a little too true. I can't help it. I mean, it's my personality maybe, but also as a like, survival strategy. Suleiman Khatib often goes by Suli. He's an activist living in Ramallah. His biography, In This Place Together, which he co-wrote with activist and writer Penina Eilberg-Schwartz, just came out this year. And in it, Suli repeatedly calls himself an optimist. And his relentless optimism is that Israelis and Palestinians can, in his lifetime, coexist in full peace and freedom and that it can be achieved together through nonviolence. If you ask anybody at the time, in Berlin in 1988, like a week before, even intelligence, they didn't know, they didn't feel, they were not optimistic that Berlin will be united. And this is the, our conversation is the same. Change can happen in a very strange ways in the history. Mass movements can really mobilize much weaker than we think. Suli was actually nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in both 2017 and 2018 for his work with the group he co-founded called Combatants for Peace. They give talks and organize gatherings and demonstrations with both Israeli and Palestinian former fighters. And some people find Combatants for Peace super controversial, that Suli is reaching out to Israelis to do direct action together. The foundation really started from people that participated in the violent army side. And they reach the point there is no military solution for the conflict. Um, Wait, why, why, why say conflict? You know, the sides aren't equal. It's and it's an. Uh, no, I mean, like, you know, I'm trying to describe the reality. What words people use, they can use. So this intellectual, like, uh, privileged conversation about like the terms, it doesn't really it doesn't. I don't care about it so much. We live under Israeli control, army control. That's a fact. You can call it what you want. I also know some Israelis because that's who I am. I'm a bridge person. I can't change myself like in that way. I know Hebrew. I have Israeli friends. They call it also, they write to me every day. And this gives me hope that there are more people in their heart. They know this occupation must end. And we have to change the way we deal with each other. I mean, you call yourself a bridge builder and you are like, bending over backwards to, like, meet Israelis where they're at. And, like, they're the ones with all the power and the time and the yeah. money and the energy. Like, why is it income? Why do you have to be the one to learn Hebrew and learn about them and educate them? Yeah, so of, we speak a lot about the power dynamic. It's a very important subject. And I know we're tired, like, how much can we teach the world? It's not just even the Israelis. In my experience, like building these bridges among our people is so important because for the first time, like the Palestinian almost united right now compared to the previous times. Even the social media, the internet and the world, like people feel the world start to listen to our voices. I just feel like, you know, the thing that united 
the Palestinian diaspora and the world right now is not peace. Mm -hmm. Like that's not what has been the uniter right now. Uh, yes, this is how I think. Of course, there are a million opinions. You can ask 10 people, Palestinian now, and they will give you 10 answers. Right, I want to talk to you as an optimist. Yeah, so I, I, I'm accused to be optimistic. I, I don't think I live in the sky. Like I live in reality also. My family live here. My sister's son was arrested tonight and was released this morning. I just, I'm trying to say definitely I live in reality. It's not like a dreamer and living in the cloud. The Palestinian founders of Combatants for Peace all spent time in prison. Suli was released from prison in 1997 when he was 24 years old. He had been incarcerated since he was 14. Jail time, I spent 10 years and five months. Uh, all in all, when we're in jail, we always expect the freedom to come. How? Nobody has the answer. So, Suli, when you first entered prison, was there an an end in sight? Like, how long did you think you would be there? Um, no, I didn't know how long I will be uh, there, and I didn't think about it so much. Because you can't think about it. If you think about it, that you will spend the next decade in jail, uh, it will be too hard. Before he was tried in military court, Suli was growing up in a village called Hizma. My village, which is uh, located 10 minutes from Jerusalem, is surrounded by three, four settlements around. So. I seen this in my eyes, so I don't need to read books about colonialism or anything. No, it's something you feel that your home physically, literally, is really in danger. You have a, a blood-like connection to the land, to the trees, and you start feeling this is a big power is taking this land step by step because you see they are building and bringing in new settlers from Russia and other places that even doesn't didn't speak Hebrew. So my village, little village, was part of Jerusalem. Haircut in Jerusalem, shopping in Jerusalem, dating in Jerusalem, memories is just there. Jerusalem was like our central life. And because the settlement set on that road, we are not allowed to enter anymore. There is a checkpoint, and later on there is the wall, obviously. So it has many effects. One of them, effect on water, on, on agriculture, on the season, on the... Life uh, is it literally cut off water? Yeah, and basically the settlers they build around the, the water resources. They control every aspect of our life. That's the truth. When Suli was a kid, he couldn't say the word Palestine. It was illegal to fly the Palestinian flag. You couldn't talk about any politics or draw a Palestinian flag. This was illegal. So I did everything I could at the time, like raising Palestinian flag illegally at night because you could be arrested for six months for that. Any activism, any political action will be faced with heavy Israeli army presence there, arresting people. And I've seen this in my eyes, of course, many times. You just have a feeling either you will be injured or you will be killed. These are the two options. Basically, around my village, we had a famous valley, historical one, with a lot of water. And now it's all under Israeli control and settlements around there. And that's where my dad and mine met on the water spring. So we used to laugh in, in them as a, like a romantic thing. And that's where I learned to swim. And that's where I attacked two Israelis. 
in August of 1986, Suli and a friend of his waited by that spring with knives. Israelis used to come to the spring, and like usually there would be army there or sometimes civilians, and so it's expected to find Israelis there. We didn't know who we will meet. And we saw these two Israelis that were in the army, but at the time they were in vocation, so they were like uh, hiking. And they were like 19, 20 years old. I was 14 and five months at this point, and yeah. Okay, sorry. <laughs> and we, so yeah, we used knives, we stabbed them, and the uh, intention was to take their weapon in order to use it later on. I went to get a gun in order to use it uh, against this new settlement. Yeah, honestly, because like at the time, the thing I know was uh, the only way to resist this situation was the like armed struggle. Were you like, well, I guess I'm just going to get arrested anyway, so I might as well do it? Yes, and also, like, honestly, I didn't want to live in uh, obeying uh, occupation policies, and I didn't want to live with this. It's not I want to die, no. For Palestinian, generally, generally, I'm generalizing the narrative. The occupation is the terror thing happened to us. And any struggle against it is just legitimate and moral and should happen, honestly. Like, it's a um, reaction to the system. Yeah, I believed in what I did, but I didn't think about the risk and the price so much. And so the the soldiers were just wounded. Mm. They weren't, okay. Yeah, they were wounded and they take us to a military jail since we are not Israeli citizens and we live under the occupation rules. It's not the normal Israeli law. They take you to uh, the investigation uh, section, which is the hardest time in jail because you are isolated alone and you are under physical and psychological torture for a while. Like with the darkness in the cell or when they put the, I don't know what you call it in English. Uh, like the hood? Yeah, and like with the handcuff and with beating. And this was very like harsh times for me, like a lot of trauma from the time. And I was struggling to stay strong and, you know, like... Uh, dreams that the sunshine again did it ever make you did it ever make you feel foolish like in 1994 when over 4000 prisoners were released including many of your friends and not you i mean how did you hold on to that hope yeah of course there is moments like this uh, one of the hardest moments of course you feel deeply like sad and uh, you cry and you feel lonely you left behind yeah, this is really, I have to say, things became darker at these kind of moments. I recognize this, like you look at the four walls around you, you just walk in the room alone, um, smoking a lot at the time. And after like being uh, down in my energy, I recognize what happened and I breathe again. And I think what I should change and happened and now what should I do to accommodate with a new situation actually. This is probably a stupid question, but I feel like you you are in a jail, in an occupied territory, and you're asking yourself, like, what can I do? You know, like, you are, from the outside perspective, almost entirely powerless. 
And did it ever feel uh, delusional mm. to ask yourself what you could do? Uh, let me say, from within, we don't, I speak now, not for everybody that was with me in jail, but some of us or many of us, the strong one among us didn't feel weakness. I understand from outside, like you're in jail, what can you do? But no, if we can feel, think of it like in a positive way, it's really possible for each of us to even learn how to live with personal or collective crisis. My first hunger strike, I was 15 with 100-something teenagers. And we had hunger strike for 17 days or 16 days, sometimes 10 days. And we were organized in solidarity with different groups in jail and outside jail. So we have to demand to improve the daily life in jail. For example, to stop physical torture, to stop isolating prisoners from each other. Around like 30 demands usually. Once they agree to give us like 25, we stop. Because the point is to improve the life in jail, not to die. And we always succeed. But I mean, as a metaphor, it's so heartbreaking that you had to basically, you had to hurt yourself. You had to like yeah. se severely, severely hurt yourself to make life a little better. Yeah, I think uh, like in jail, the power dynamic between the prisoners and the Israeli like army is zero to compare. We have nothing than our determination and our spirit and our unity, our solidarity. We always succeed. Certainly. Well, I mean, I just like, again, just pushing back, like, you know, Abbas is the most compliant leader and, and compromise has only been met with like, Mm -hmm. Mur murder yeah no right so like what do we do yeah. with that so as far as i know okay i can bring it from my experience i'm i never studied this like a professional wise but i what i know from my personal and group experience in jail there is a lot of teaching how to stay calm and optimistic despite challenges and this is one of the tests that we have right now during the war in Gaza and Sheikh Jarrah and Jerusalem. So I have been talking to some friends, Palestinian, Israelis. They felt there was really a good moment to create like a huge mass movement of non-violence. Strategical-wise, it's very stupid to use violence in front of a heavy, well-armed army like the Israeli army, one of the strongest, supported and backed by Germany, by America, by all the world. The system interest is to shift things to the violence corner because there they win obviously uh, and it happened all the time the non-violence struggle here happened all the time and it will continue it's actually not something we imported from martin luther king or mandela or gandhi it does exist in our culture strongly like i'm not religious but like in the muslim culture like ali bin abi talib is a famous scholar that spoke a lot about non-violence actually it's really hard like to to convince people under the occupation that nonviolence can even work. I, I mean, you know, like people here that were in jail were humiliated and still humiliated and the one in diaspora that can't visit their homeland. I believe the anger is legitimate. I think we have to be strong and uh, not lose uh, hope. But what are you ultimately, what is the goal for you? Yeah, okay. 
So for me personally, is uh, really to end the occupation and to create really like a safe space and equality for everybody that lives here. For many Palestinians, including the ones supposed to be radical, they would tell you this is the narrative, like Jewish lived among us over the history, but not like a state is a Zionist European colonialist movement. But Jewish, just a religion, like any religion, and they could live here as in the past. I'm not legitimizing any wrongdoing that the Israelis doing. I just don't know, in a personal level, any way out if we don't coordinate responsibility together. I'm not like a super fan of two-state, and I'm aware like we can't jump from an apartheid system to live together like in harmony. That's not going to happen like tomorrow. I want us to live together next to each other. That's what I want in the ultimate goal. And I feel humanizing the other and their story and narrative, it will make things easier. I definitely don't mean that getting to know each other is enough. Obviously, it's one little piece of it. Boycott and many other pressures has to happen. Direct action, disobedience, and many other strategies. All this optimism doesn't mean we sit aside or we don't do anything. That's not what I mean. Uh, yeah, um, I actually have a question to you. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. I just like feel I want. How do you feel? Honest. How do I feel? Like honest. Yeah. Personally, um, I think it feels very understandable. And I'm having a hard time because I also think it also can sound like another trope, you know, like a violent, a violent Palestinian goes to jail and gets reformed and comes out a freedom fighter. And I want to not, because it is your story. It's truly your, your story. And it is also a story that Westerners like, that white Jews like. And so I'm having a hard time navigating it because I don't want to over-sentimentalize it. Yeah. And I, I want to hear your, your motives and understand. You know what I mean? I, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you make of your own, yeah, no. your own story? Yeah, yeah, no, no, I thank you for saying this. I am aware of this, actually, because some people say, oh, you're a really nice guy, and no, 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 let's send everybody to jail, and then we will have this. That's not, uh, obviously, <sighs> I my story gave me some legitimacy uh, in some eyes, in different sides, and that's why I'm exposing myself to evil, which is not the nicest, easiest thing to do. You lose your privacy and whatever. But I want to use this for other people to to maybe soften their heart, to like move them a little bit. And I feel from my experience, I believe this is working. But, you know, I want to say, and this is what I say to, this is maybe important to say to people that oppose any kind of connection and dialogue. Most of Israelis that I know of, the one that really really show like serious, strong solidarity with Palestinians, the one that refused the army, the one that really come to action with Palestinians, mostly likely they started in dialogue. This is like an emotional thing. It's a heart, it's a mindset to change. It's not a dreaming just and being in the cloud. And I have to say 
the privilege of losing hope, I don't have it, personally. Of course, it's my nature being optimistic, but really, I don't feel this privilege. And it's easier for somebody else, for other people that's not living here, to lose hope and not to deal with it. Uh, that's not for me. I'm not there. This conversation was condensed from four collective hours, all of it pushed, informed, and nurtured by Penina Eilberg Schwartz and Noor Wazwaz. Thank you both. And thank you to Suleiman Khatib. His book that he co wrote with Penina is called In This Place Together. It's available now. Very special thanks as well to Alison Berenger, Imran Ali Malik, Sarah Cavedo, and most of all, most of all, intrepid late night editor. Kelly Prime. The Cut Podcast is Jasmine Aguilera, B.A. Parker, Skylar Swenson, and Noor Buzidi. Welcome aboard to the team. Excited to hear what you do and enjoy the show as a listener. Executive producers are Hannah Rosen, Nishat Kirwa, and Stella Bugby. Mixed by the incredible Alex Higgins. I'm Avery Truffleman. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.